The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. And welcome to episode 27 of The Wizard Files, the special podcast series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who enjoyed a brief run at Wizard before playing godfather to Wizard's most celebrated sister publication, Toy Fair, as its first editor. We're excited to welcome to the show, Scott Beatty. Scott, how are you? I'm good, Adam. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've never been called godfather before, so this is a a first. Scott, this is very exciting because we know you know your way around the comic book log box and the toy box. So why don't we go back to the beginning and you tell us how did comic books first enter your life? Well, as a kid, I was, I guess, as interested in comic books as I am now. However, there there are some, I guess, crux moments in my life where comics just sort of bubbled up and over. I loved the Super Friends as a kid. That was one of my first experiences watching color TV after my parents got their first color TV. And I'm going to say 1974, way, way back. I'm dating myself and I I feel so old saying that. But I was in the hospital in 1977. I had pneumonia and I was hospitalized for a full week and I missed seeing Star Wars with my brothers and cousins and all my family members. And to help while away the loneliness of being stuck in the hospital, my dad went down to the hospital gift shop and brought me three comics. And those were uh, an issue of Batman Family from DC, Secret Society of Supervillains number 11 from DC Comics, and and Richie Rich. And uh, I just devoured them. I, I, I was I was all in. I was hooked. And after that, any spare money I could find returning glass pop bottles. I delivered actually two newspapers in my, my hometown. Any spare change I could find, anything that I could do to earn money was for comic books. And I was hooked. I was a Johnny DC from the start. And uh, I only came to Marvel later. And that was by virtue of the X-Men Teen Titans crossover, which uh, opened up a whole new world for me. The uh, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Alpha Flight. But I've always had my heart firmly entrenched in DC from the beginning. So I, I couldn't stop. I was, I was, you know, hopelessly addicted and I just loved comics from that point forward. Okay. Now how about on the toy side of things? So you're collecting the comics, you're watching super friends. What was the first big toy line for you then? I'd have to say Mego because that's the first toy line that I had anything resembling a collection. My first birthday party where I actually had friends invited over, uh, I got Migos. I got the bat cycle, the Batmobile, the wooden Chew Batcopter. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It looked like a clog uh, at that time. And uh, Batman, Robin, and all those characters. And then I think the Christmas of either 75 or 76, I just got lots of Mego characters. And my toy formative years, I think, can really be kind of calendared after that. Every Christmas and every birthday, it seemed that there was a new toy line coming out related to whatever sci-fi property was popular at the time. So I could look back at pictures from my youth and I can see Micronauts. I can see Mego. I can see Star Wars. Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the black hole. And it seemed like whatever holiday I was celebrating, I would get that particular toy line. And it was just, when I look back on those pictures, which I wish I still had many or any of those toys, 
it just was magical for me. It engendered a, a love of action figures that, that really persists to this day, actually. I will tell you, my own personal Mego collection was very small, but I definitely had Amigo Spidey, who became very important to you in your publication days, uh, <laughs> and also a, a Hulk, also a featured player, but the Paunch from Chips Mego oh, yeah. action figure. I had my Eric Estrada, and I love yeah, that Yeah, Paunch and his, uh, at least in Toy Fair, he had the Mego Molt which was that uh, plastic degrading kind of, I don't know, pandemic that happened uh -huh. to a lot of Mego figures where it just, it would turn gray and unsightly, like zombie-like. But uh, yeah, the Paunch figure was one of the big victims of that. Now, uh, let's talk about as your love of comics is developing and you're moving on in your education, you're moving through these years, what events led to you becoming a contributing writer to Wizard in 1996? Well, I, I went to Juniata College in central Pennsylvania, and I majored in writing, creative writing. And then from there, I went to Iowa State University for a master's degree in creative writing also. And somewhere along the way, I figured that, uh, you know, I taught to help pay the bills and to put myself through grad school, but I always wanted to write, but I didn't want to just write short stories. I, I was in love with comics still. And in college and grad school, uh, I worked in radio stations. And sometimes if I had like a lonely shift on a, a late night, I would, you know, grab a couple comics to, you know, help while away the time. And I just really wanted to break into comics and some way. So I got married in 1995 and on my honeymoon, I had gotten a call from the comics buyer's guide. Uh, I had applied for a, an editor's position there and I interviewed over the phone and I, it was, the interview went great. I was waiting on a second interview from uh, Maggie Thompson and she said that she would call me for the second interview and she never called. And I don't know why to this day, just never called me. And I, I, I thought, oh great, you know, I'm never going to break into comics. But uh, Wizard did call me when I actually got back to Iowa where my wife was finishing her master's degree. And they said they were, you know, looking for a copy editor. So I drove back from Iowa to Connors, New York, and I interviewed with the company for this position. And I thought, well, you know, here's a way to break in to the comics industry, because at that time, Wizard was, you know, pretty popular. It was kind of defining the direction and the zeitgeist of the whole comic book industry. I mean, we look back on it now and we understand just how big it was, but at the time it was, it was still pretty big. And the comics companies were really coming around and treating it with the respect that it deserved because the fan base really, you know, was tuning into Wizard to see what was cool and what they should read. And I accepted a position, but I couldn't go right away because we had some things left to do in Iowa. My wife uh, was teaching at the time. So we had a couple months to spare. So Wizard let me do some freelance articles. They paid me to help kind of grease the wheels of the move that we would be doing in a few months. And so I worked on their Wolverine special. I think I did three features in that and a Spawn special at the time. I think it was around that time as well. And then we moved, my wife and I, and settled into uh, upstate New York. And I had like a 45 minute to an hour commute to Congress, New York, where Wizard was based pretty much its entire existence after moving out of Garib Seamus's garage. So, I mean, it started literally in the Seamus's kitchen yes. and uh, before moving to its corporate digs in uh, Congress, New York. It was uh, the, the big wizard complex was actually behind a company called the Wellbred Loaf. And uh, it was wonderful driving to work every day because you could just smell like this wonderful baked bread, you know, every day. So 
Now, I've mentioned the first credited piece in Wizard that we found for you was from May of 1996, and it was a piece about Grant Morrison revamping the Justice League back to the core group of iconic heroes. Then your next piece in the following issue is Jim Lee returning to pencil the Wildcats with Alan Moore as the writer on the book. So what do you remember about those first few months of contributing to Wizard and just the Um, types of assignments? (laughs) I'm going to just blame time, but I, I don't remember a lot. Actually, I don't remember the Jim Lee Wildcats all that much, but I do remember the uh, Grant Morrison and Justice League because I had talked to the editor on the books who was Ruben Diaz at DC and the Justice League at the time that all the JLA titles were really just in the toilet. I mean, DC had done so many Justice League iterations that they just all burned out. And this was this new thing where Ruben was editing the book and bringing on Grant Morrison, who had the idea to bring back the iconic seven. And it was kind of a gamble. And, you know, nobody thought it would be anything at all, that it would be as big as it got. And I had the the good fortune to interview Grant, who, God love Grant, but his Scottish brogue is almost indecipherable. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think I literally wore out the tape playing it and rewinding it just to get the nuances of of what Grant was saying. But uh, he had these grand ideas that were just spectacular when it was finally executed. So uh, Wizard had devoted, I think, about a half page for that that really short piece that I first wrote. And then later I had a full feature in, I don't know, Wizard 59, maybe something like that. Uh, But the Jim Lee on uh, Wildcats, I literally have no memory of. (laughs) They probably threw the the assignment to me and just said, hey, here's what's happening. You know, turn it into a short, short piece for the magazine. In hindsight, I can't believe that I didn't try to talk to Alan Moore because certainly Alan's work on Saga of the Swamp Thing and Watchmen were, you know, really formative in terms of how I looked at comics and why I wanted to write comics later. You also mentioned that Spawn special. You wrote a feature yeah. there called Sympathy for the Devil in yes. this Spawn special. But what can yeah. you tell us about getting involved in that, but then the lawsuit that resulted from the publication of that issue? Wow. that I mean, that was a tough time. <laughs> I had to read every single issue of Spawn. Wow. Uh, which I did. I also read every issue of Wolverine that had been published for the Wolverine special. So, I mean, when I do deep dives into things, I like to really, you know, go deep. Uh, I've done it with like the Batman Ultimate Guide and the all the Ultimate Guides that I wrote for DC Comics, where I, I would read an entire, you know, hundreds of comic books just to be credible in the end. So in the Spawn special, my editor, Brian Cunningham of Wizard said, hey, every character in Spawn or virtually every character is named after a real person in Todd McFarlane's life. So I got on the phone with Todd as I was interviewing him for, you know, all the various pieces. And I I said, Hey, I understand that you name your characters after real people. And Todd said, you know, yeah, He's like, I have the power to do it. I'm writer and editor and, you know, I do the whole shebang. And if I can't do it here, where am I going to do it? Something to that effect. I'm badly paraphrasing. So I wrote it up. I looked for every character and I got a pull quote for every single character, including Tony Twist, who was the mobster slash antagonist of the series. Total bad guy. Well, I didn't realize it until Todd mentioned it, that Tony Twist was named after Tony Twist, who was also the pseudonym of a hockey player for the St. Louis Blues. And Tony Twist, the real person, had a career ending injury that, you know, it stopped him from playing hockey. Well, somebody in Tony Twist, the real person's life, told him that he had a comic book character named after him and it was a villain. So Tony Twist, the real, went after Todd McFarlane, Spawn, Image Comics, HBO, which had done the Spawn animated series, and Wizard for defamation. 
you know, he, he wanted a big payday and he eventually got it. But I was named as one of the, the defendants in this piece because, you know, Tony Twist didn't like the fact that a character who looked nothing like him, who was named after his own pseudonym in hockey, was part of this. So I had to go to St. Louis and I had an intellectual property lawyer that was paid for by wizard because I, I did i asked for my own lawyer to represent me because i was i was afraid that i would be caught up in all this but in the end you know it was fun because i got to see my article that you're looking at right now blown up in big poster board behind me you know and of course i'm asked <laughs> questions by the legal team like you know did you write this when did you write this and they centered on the fact that you know where did i get the information and i said well i got it from brian you know brian told me he was the one who basically had the the springboard for the story however in my research, I found that in an issue of Spawn, in the letters column, Todd said exactly what we said in the article. If I can't name my characters after real people, then, you know, nobody can. So he is quoted in his own title as saying that, which exonerated me because the lawyers tried to, to get me on the fact that where is my proof? And I, I had tapes as a reporter where I recorded the conversations over the phone. But then when I was done with the story, I, I recorded over them because I was a poor freelancer and I wasn't going to keep, you know, this wasn't Watergate for crying out loud. I didn't need to keep the evidence. You know? <laughs> once it was published, it was done. So once I uh, let them know that it was actually in the Spawn comic book, that got me off the hook. And it also got Wizard off the hook and Brian off the hook, who was also deposed. And I think, you know, it went in the courts a couple years running. And at the time, Todd had the, I guess, you know, the, the big balls, pardon the phrase. Uh, he was purchasing a lot of baseballs at the time, the, the home run baseballs from Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. I mean, right. he was, you know, because he was making so much money with McFarlane toys and Spawn and everything else, he was just, you know, burning money at for all these uh sports memorabilia and that didn't help and i think tony twist ended up getting a couple million as a result and tony twist if you are listening uh i did help you get that big payday so <laughs> if, if you have anything left over certainly you at can least throw side some. of hockey puck side of stick yeah yeah i mean give me a memory of something i actually i think there was some comic book store in st louis that had acquired the blow-ups of my stories and i tried to contact them to say hey can i have one to frame because you know it was the most scandalous part of my freelance writing career to date that's what we'll say if any of you you know canadian listeners and we know you're out there listening <laughs> if you have a connection to some sports expo or con where tony twist yeah. is going to be there we'll send up the spawn special you get him to sign it <laughs> get yeah, his I side think, of the story i i think i'm owed at least a finder's fee for helping tony twist to take todd to the bank and there you go you know I think Todd's okay now, but uh, he, he did have to pay. Now, as you mentioned, you know, you were made copy editor of Wizard with yes. issue 61. So during that time that you were now not just contributing these articles from afar, but in the offices, did you get to meet any of your comic book idols during that period? Like on some of your assignments, uh, you said um, you missed out on Alan Moore, but who did you yeah. get to have contact with? I didn't really get to meet anybody like in person until uh, Wizard started doing the convention circuit. I mean, they were doing it, but they would fly the entire staff out to like Wizard World Chicago or the San Diego Comic-Con. And, you know, I got to meet a lot of people. I, I think that one of my favorite stories was meeting Marv Wolfman and just kind of geeking over Freakazoid, which was just new at the time. And the DC Warner was playing it on their Jumbotron at the DC Comics booth. So, you know, I got to meet a lot of those people and I sort of figured out somewhere along the way that I started walking down Artist Alley and I realized that a lot of the real comic book greats, people like Kurt Schaffenberger, who did Captain Marvel, uh, Ramona Fraden, who did, you know, Aquaman 
Superman and Super Friends and stuff like that, they had nobody in line. You know, the lines were for people like Kevin Smith and all the, you know, the rock stars and all of these great old comic artists just didn't have any people showing up. So I started talking to them. You know, it, it was a fun time because, you know, I got to meet them and just sort of just kind of geek over comics and not, you know, not be in the long lines for the, you know, the image guys, you know, the Mark Silvestri's or the Todd McFarlane's of the world. So um, I can't think of anybody else in particular, but I did get to meet Bernie Wrightson while he was alive and chat with him. Oh, nice. um, Marv Wolfman, George Perez, you know, just a lot of the people that that I really loved reading when I was younger. So if, if not Alan Moore for Swamp Thing, at least Bernie Wrightson, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't even think Alan Moore was doing conventions at that point because he had that. I mean, the famous apocryphal story was that a fan had followed Alan Moore, like literally into a restroom stall. And he realized that fandom was just a little too John Lennon, you know, <laughs> ish, you know, in a dark way. So I think he stopped going to cons at that point. Okay. Well, so now at this point then you're, you're in the wizard offices and, you know, we've found evidence that you once dressed as Brainiac five for a wizard <laughs> Halloween party. It doesn't get yes. more DC than that. You got a confession of attempted murder from the warehouse manager Donato as referenced in the magazine at one point. I yeah. almost killed someone with a piece of wood. <laughs> <laughs> you were also crowned champion of an office sponsored DC Comics trivia competition, yes. wherein you were awarded Jim Lee's stolen bathrobe from a previous con. So, yeah. what can you tell us about that experience and the other office shenanigans that you recall? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Well, just joining as copy editor. So that's what I was hired for. But I sort of, uh, I went in knowing that they were going to do something with the toy column and the toy magazine was was in the offing. So I knew that, that you know, I was going to be moving up the ladder more quickly than, than I had thought. I knew that there was going to be a future for me in editorial there. The Jim Lee bathrobe, the conventions were pretty interesting. There were lots of convention rules with Wizard of too many stories and some I'm not even sure I'm allowed to tell. But uh, there was a raid on Jim Lee's penthouse room in Chicago and the wizard gang stole his bathrobe. And so that became kind of a point of competitive contention. I don't know if there's a better <laughs> term between Jim and the wizard staff. And it was part of the reward for winning the DC Comics trivia contest. And I was pitted against a couple people, including Lars Pearson, who was the price guide manager at the time. So we all wore funny hats. I think I had a sombrero and uh, my prize was the bathrobe, but it wasn't, it was kind of like a no prize because I didn't get to take at home. I think uh, I was just photographed in it, maybe wearing it. And I'm not sure if they sent the picture to Jim or not, or as we befouled, but this bathrobe was, <laughs> it was a, a hotel room bathrobe. It wasn't literally his, his personal property, not the bathrobe that he lounged around his, his giant estate in. By the way, speaking of which, your quote from that particular piece was, I live the dream of every comic fan. I work at Wizard Press. I'm the king of DC trivia and I've got Jim Lee's robe. I could die wow. happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been partially scripted. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the lines blurring reality and, and the comic book reality at Wizard were sometimes fuzzy. But Donato's confession, we lived in fear of Donato. He just had that presence. You know, <laughs> he was just this, this giant bear of a man who, you know, kept everything working in the warehouse and the ships running on time. Uh, however, my story about Donato is that when I went to interview, my wife drove me and I interviewed in winter and it, had, it was starting to snow badly as we were leaving. And I think my wife, as I got in the car, backed into Donato's car. He came out and said, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. It was like a, I don't know. I think he had like a beater at the time, you know, hoopty. <laughs> he didn't care about the car. 
car. But I thought, oh, great. Not only did I not get the job, this this giant guy is going to murder me. I don't think his <laughs> murder quote was, it was another murder that he was connected to, not my impending doom. <laughs> no. But I mean, but that's kind of a, the whole, you know, shenanigans that, that Wizard was all about. I mean, every bit of drama, real or... Uh, you know, scripted kind of found its way into the magazine. I was kind of the most straight laced guy there. I was newly married, you know, fresh out of grad school. And a lot of the wizard staffers kind of lived in these group houses, like these frat houses, you know, right out of Animal House. And, you know, they stayed late, played video games, played foosball. And I went home to my my lovely spouse. And so they, they tried to knock me down a peg or two and, and kind of make me lighten up by playing all sorts of pranks on me. One time they filled my office with the tiny Xeroxed heads of copy editor, associate editor, Mark Wolkowski, who was, uh, Mark has passed on now, but uh, just was, you know, really sweet, nerdy guy. But these little goateed Mark Wolkowski heads were literally everywhere. I found them in my Rolodex, my calendar, under my desk, everywhere. Another time they saran wrapped every single object in my office, right down to paper clips, individual paper clips. And, you know, I would spend half the day unwrapping my office. And at Wizard, I mean, that was okay. You know, I, I, <laughs> I still got paid, you know, as long as the magazine came out on time, things like that would happen. So uh, editor-in-chief Pat McCallum would take a practical joke to you know the, the nth degree you know right up to the point where either somebody died or you know <laughs> or close to it i mean i don't know if any of the other staffers told you about the the body thrown off the roof oh yeah so we've heard yeah, many okay. sides of that story. yeah yeah i yeah. wasn't there I, I i heard that secondhand but i mean it totally rings true including all the reactions especially joe yanarella the managing editor's reaction that it had to happen sometime you know that sort of thing so <laughs> You know, this is a place where, you know, Visine brownies, you know, Visine gets the red out, but it also gets the brown out, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, yeah. And, you know, there's one bathroom and Wizard had sort of the... Uh, corporate atmosphere where it was sort of upstairs, downstairs, you know, the upstairs people rarely, you know, had interactions with the downstairs people, except when, you know, we had to cross over for getting the magazines out. And, uh, you know, the corporate people upstairs had their own very nice bathroom and we had the most disgusting bathroom on the planet downstairs. And so imagine that being just log jammed at the door because of, you know, people having eaten really bad you know, spiked brownies, that sort of thing. So, <laughs> you know, it was team building between the people who did it and the people who were victims of the practical jokes. But, you know, when you were on the receiving end sometimes it didn't feel so great but you know in hindsight you know i look back on it with fondness yeah and so getting back to what you were talking about is you kind of came in with an understanding that there was something in the works in regards to toys because by issue 71, you were actually given the title of toy editor after having taken over the toy chest section starting at issue 64. So you were definitely in the mix there. And then you were, it seemed like by issue 75 at that point, I don't know if you were just full time at Toy Fair because it had already launched and everything. But what can you tell us about that period of transition to becoming the resident toy guy at Wizard? Well, when I took over the toy column, it was written by John Warren. And John was kind of, you know, compiling things that sort of were wizard related Star Wars toys. I think they were just coming back around uh, superhero toys. And there were very few at the time. I mean, other than Toy Biz, you know, DC Direct really hadn't taken off at that point. And, you know, John was assembling this stuff. And I, I just, I found it to be easier for our purposes if I just went right to the toy companies and said, you know, hey, listen, this is Scott Beatty, you know, editor of the toy column. Can I get photography? Or can I get samples for a review? And I just started courting relationships with the various companies. And I really, 
I mean, I hate to say it, but I kind of made John obsolete because I had to edit him and I had to rewrite him. It was easier just to write it myself, especially when we were getting all the materials in-house. And I think Wizard, as it grew, was starting to recognize all the different areas that it could branch out into, including, you know, Inquest, which was the gaming magazine, and then the various specials that were coming out. So, you know, the toy column started getting bigger. And as the toy column got bigger, we were able to, by virtue of being close to New York, to go to the, the International Toy Fair and, you know, go there to see what there was to see. And we kind of created the atmosphere that I think allowed Toy Fair to exist because I broke through and made all the contacts with the toy companies and kind of gave us a little more legitimacy so that when we launched, you know, we hit the ground running and we had all the, the contacts and all the infrastructure in place. Okay. So speaking of which, uh, you know, going to Toy Fair and all of that in 1997 with Pat McCallum, with Buddy Scalera and others, what do you remember most about that particular experience? I don't actually remember much about that trip. I remember the, the toy fairs later with uh, Tom Palmer Jr. and Tom Root, who of course is now at Robot Chicken at Cartoon Network. I remember that, you know, we were kind of blown away. Like, you know, we had to put on our big boy clothes, you know, suit and tie and things like that, because as quote unquote uh, toy journalists, we had to look the look and kind of learned what toy fair was all about because it had really never been covered by entertainment magazines all that much. Like, you know, you got pictures that were in other action figure publications that showed the new toys, but not really the behind the scenes of how Toy Fair operated. And really, Toy Fair at that time was just this big toy introduction to all the brick and mortar stores of everything that the toy companies had coming out. And because it was based in New York, they would hire these young actors and actresses to be spokesmodels for the toys. And the thing that uh, that a lot of the toy first staff was interested in was the fact that, that Mattel would hire young, attractive women to be Barbies, you know, to introduce Barbies. And then, you know, you would have, you know, these other young, you know, hip actors that were talking about things like, you know, Masters of the Universe and stuff like that. And if you Google street show, Vin Diesel. You can see a yes. very young Vin Diesel. And I remember <laughs> meeting Vin Diesel, but I, he wasn't Vin Diesel at the time. He was just... Yeah the dude that was slinging street sharks. And uh, that's what it was like. Like, you know, these guys are like, you know, hey, street sharks, you know, coming at you this fall. And it was just a lot of fun. They had tons of freebies. You know, you'd get like a Barbie mug that would change colors from black to pink when it had hot water in it. You would get exclusive Hot Wheels or exclusive Star Wars figures. And you would come home with these goodie bags and just a great time. And so that's really what it was about. We kind of learned how to cover the toy industry as a result. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll tell you, I used to manage a KB toy store. It's so much. Mattel actually sent out a Barbie model to come to our store for a big promotion one time. So I got a little taste of that. It was just kind of awkward. Like it was just me and her. So uh, wait for the kids to come around here. Well, yeah. Uh, Well, and you have to understand a lot of the the wizard guys at the time were unmarried, young and unmarried. And you'd have to make appointments with various companies. So today is Hasbro. Tomorrow is Trendmasters. And Wednesday is Mattel. And they would always say, hey, is today Mattel Day? Is is it Mattel Day? Are you going to go see Mattel? I'm going to go see the Barbie. Like, you know, guys, come on, just just settle down. There's only room for four in the car. And one of them is the photographer. So So what was your experience then as you said, you know, you thought they wanted to do something with toys as a standalone special magazine. So what was the first mention of creating a Toy Fair special that you recall? And how were you selected to be the editor? I mean, that's kind of why I was hired. I was working for Wizard, but when Toy Fair opened up that I was going to be moved over and head up the Toy Fair branch. 
how did you in particular sell yourself as, well, I'm the guy to do it? I mean, I had always loved toys. I didn't keep all of my toys. I actually, when I was in grad school and cash poor, I sold a lot of my Star Wars toys that I had collected since 1977. But I, I think the Batman animated series figures were coming out around the time in the 90s, early 90s when I was in grad school. So I had started collecting them. So I, I when I went in for the interview and they talked about taking over the toy column, I was able to talk the talk. You know, I knew about the collectibles. I knew what was out there, basically. And there weren't a lot, especially superheroes. It was mostly Toy Biz and Kenner, Hasbro, which had you know the Total Justice line at the time. And the Toy Fair special was sort of testing the waters of how well the publication would sell. And, you know, they went to the trouble of creating a logo. It wasn't, you know, a wizard special devoted just to toys. It was Toy Fair, which was a play on the International Toy Fair. We had that cool capital F and we had much debate in wizard and design about whether or not the F would be canted playfully to one side or if it would be straight up and down. So, you know, we really had this decision from the start. So just slotting it into the publication schedule and then making sure that the sales were solid on the first issue. And we put a lot of money into it. You know, at the time we were doing different articles about like how to customize action figures, how to build your own action figures. I'm like all that stuff that is basically part and parcel, the whole landscape of toys as it is now, like guys who go out and they take a figure and if they don't like it, they, they shave things off and customize it to their satisfaction. We were doing articles at the time that told people how to do that. We were doing top 10 lists with uh, you know, the favorite Star Wars characters that you have never seen. And of course they've made four versions in the last 20 years since then. But we, we kind of created that whole infrastructure to allow it to, to grow. And we got Charlie Flat, who was this Mego customizer in Florida, to build these super awesome Mego figures for our covers that were hyperposable. But it kind of harkened back to our nostalgia for Mego, but allowed us to do these great photographic covers. And before Toy Fair, any action figure just kind of you know took the figure and just you know took a picture and that was it. We built sets. We you know had a professional photographer, Paul Chiraldi, who did a lot of the wizard stuff, like photographing writers and artists, come in and sort of be our toy guy. And when Paul would come in, we'd set up an entire day in our warehouse for Paul to set up his lighting gear and everything and create kind of a, a an in-house studio. And then we would just shoot everything we needed to shoot, including half a day for a cover, just to make sure that it was perfect. And you know, we paid Charlie Flat, I don't know, thousands of dollars to build us these customized figures that were used on the cover and then eventually became the backup cast for Twisted Mego Theater, which which then later became Twisted Toy Fair Theater. Scott, we've heard various theories about how Twisted Toy Fair Theater was conceived. Uh, you know, Andrew Carden had some theories about that it actually started on his desk with his Mego figures. That's where Pat got the idea. But what is your recollection of how this fan favorite feature in the magazine came to be? You know, that, that sounds about right. I think Andrew uh, had a Mego Spidey on his desk. And I think we, we started out by borrowing Andrew's Mego Spidey before acquiring our own and then acquiring more than a few Mego Spideys because of the wear and tear on Mego Spidey. It had to come from the wellspring of Pat's imagination. You know, we were trying to be a, an entertainment magazine and an informational magazine, but so we wanted to do something irreverent and we had gotten wind of the fact that uh, there was a guy in Florida named Charlie Flat who was just this awesome Mego customizer. And uh, his, his Mego customs just blew everything out of the park. I mean, the, the guy sculpted faces, he sewed, hand-sewed costumes. And I think the initial idea that we ran with was, 
Mego Jeopardy with uh, Dr. Doom, the Red Skull, and Mr. Mind. And uh, he even made a little tiny Mr. Mind who, uh, it, it was Sculpey or something like that, but it looked like Marzipan. It looked like, a you know, the tiniest, most adorable, evil piece of candy in the world. I'm leaving out the best part. I'm so sorry. Mego Alex Trebek. May he rest in peace. <laughs> and it's really fun to watch the evolution. Yeah, because really that first year, essentially, like you were saying, you know, it's just kind of like, it, it's not found its groove yet. You kind of are trying different ideas. It's not always the same format each time. Yeah. I mean, we were throwing a lot of stuff against the wall, mostly based on the content. We had contests where uh, we gave away like, I don't know, like, I think like 500 ises from uh, Sam Keith's The Max. <laughs> and they were they, they were sold in bags from McFarland Toys and we wanted to give away as many as we could. So one contest was we randomly uh, inserted ises throughout the magazine and hid them in, in the text and in the design, which was a nightmare for the design team. But it was just a matter of doing everything we could so that each page had some kind of, you know, in addition to the the print content, had some kind of joke or an action figure doing something. I mean, every page had to have something. And so we did whatever we could. We were you know, throwing every idea. Yeah. So it seemed like initially you guys took the template of Wizard Magazine in the format and then, yeah, just kind of took it to the nth degree and just kept stacking more and more onto it. Yeah, I think we had probably the recommended daily allowance of fart jokes than Wizard did. <laughs> I mean, we, we got a little bit, we were way more scatological humor than Wizard. But, you know, the action figures with the word balloons saying things, you know, saying inappropriate things, uh, all the innuendo. I mean, that was just, it made the price guide worth reading, you know, other than just the value of your, you know, your collectible toys. And, you know, we would just set up random figures, photograph them, and then send a clipboard around the offices with the instructions, caption this. And then we would pick the best one. And uh, it was so much laughter when we get the, the clipboards back and just, you know, rolling out of our seats laughing at just the depravity of uh, the wizard staff. <laughs> you know, the, the things that could only come out uh, out of action figures' mouths, but certainly came out of the minds of uh, our, our, our cohorts. Now, getting back to some of the custom figures, like you said, so many of them were customized specifically for the magazine. I have to imagine that many readers wrote in asking where they could buy them. I don't know. Was that the case? I mean, we started out with Charlie Flat for the Migos, but we found all of these, these readers and then people started volunteering that, uh, you know, they could do this or they could do that. And depending on the kind of figure, whether it was Star Wars figures or Mego sized or, you know, the, the growing, I don't even think six inch action figure of that scale was, was really big yet. We were still at, I think five inch for total justice and, uh, and the toy biz Marvel figure. So, you know, it was really growing at that point, but we, we just, we figured, Hey, there's never been a Porkins figure from star Wars. And so we did the Porkins figure. And of course, you know, he's got a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. And then sure enough, like later, you know, star Wars and Hasbro made every single, I mean, if a character had a background scene for, I don't know, 1.3 seconds, it got a figure. And I think we partially influenced them that it didn't matter. Fans wanted everybody, every iteration of every Star Wars character, no matter well, how stupid. And I'm curious to know for you, like, I assume you were reading a lot of the letters that were coming <laughs> in. So what was the most common question or most common type of correspondence from the readers? Oh, was there one that just came over and over again? You know, the thing uh, that... Uh, and the thing that I'm reminded of is that we, we decided to, that, that we weren't going to treat the letters that seriously. I mean, we would. I mean, we were, obviously, we were interested in the reader feedback and what they liked. But it was Jim McLaughlin, who was the letter column author at Wizard, to employ his good friend's Malamute. 
And that's where we had Zach Malamute answer many of the letters. And then Zach got his own feature. And the, the, <laughs> The, the weird thing was Jim just told us this weird anecdote about his friend having this Malamute that was afraid of coffee cups. And we thought, okay, we've got to see this dog. And we, we got pictures and the dog was beautiful. And we thought, well, let's have Zach taste test action figures, you know, and kind of test them in any, only a way a dog could like destroying them. And so Zach became a regular feature and uh, Jim's friend, uh, whose name I'm blanking on, I apologize, provided the voice of Zach, uh, the editorial voice. And, you know, it was I don't know. It sounded a lot like Doug from Up, you know, just that kind of weird, you know, very earnest, but certainly, you know, a dog voice. Well, you know, I'm curious about that because I know like in the early issues too, like John Seals, he had done like yes, the great comic book stress test and then yes, he, John. he started doing, okay, so it was John. All right. Yeah, it was John. It was John. I'm sorry. I was blanking on the name, but yeah, uh, that's yeah John and Zach and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. What other magazine at the time was, you know, having the action figures, you know, talking about flatulence and one of the emeritus editors was a, a dog, you know? <laughs> now, staying on the track of the custom figures, you guys started offering those exclusives, you know, from the very start, there was Kitty Pride, there was the Molten Man, you know, they were the initial offerings. What can you tell us about the selection process just in general for exclusive figures you were going to offer and the process of actually getting them produced? The selection process was really what was available at the time. We had uh, courted a relationship with Toy Biz because they were close to Marvel. And so I'm not sure, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. But uh, we had talked to Toy Biz about the possibility since Toy Biz had used a lot of, uh, it maybe started the reuse of parts uh, where they would have, you know, certain arms, legs, torsos, things like that, that they could repurpose very easily because they were sort of a a, a blank buck, you know, a buck body as they, they called them. And you know, we just went to them and said, hey, you know, you've got this female body that you've used three times over. Could we do Kitty Pride? And it would just involve this and sort of a soft goods tunic. And, and they were amenable to it as long as we could purchase enough figures and then uh, sell them. And we thought based on Toy Fair's numbers, Wizards cross-pollination, and the fact that uh, Wizard had an increasingly large convention presence that uh, if they didn't sell through the magazine, that we would have them at the shows and just sell them from the Wizard booth. So it worked out pretty well. So Kitty Pride and Molten Man, I think were the first two. And then we started approaching other companies about you know doing figures with them. And I think the one that I'm most proud of was uh, the Total Justice line. I, I had uh, gotten to know Aaron Archer at Hasbro. And Aaron at the time was the lead designer and uh, kind of spearheaded Total Justice, the first DC action figures other than Batman since uh, Superpowers. And they had a flash body and it just struck me that, hey, you know, let's do the reverse flash. Let's just reverse the deco. Took a lot of back and forth with Hasbro to convince them that we were legit and genuine and, and we could do it. And, and eventually they, they caved in and we did it. And it's probably the figure I'm most proud of as a Johnny DC kind of guy. Yeah, that's great. And I got to say, you know, we were lucky enough that uh, Mike Fasolo, who obviously joined Tom Root and the other Toy Fair guys uh, with Robot Chicken, we had him on and he actually sent us the Kitty Pride. We got Reverse Flash. We got the uh, the Eradicator Superman. Yeah, you know, yeah. So they, was... When Total Justice ended, they had some figures that were already tooled up. And uh, for anyone who knows action figures, the cost is almost all in the tooling. It's kind of like print costs, like print costs you have to get the, the printer up and running. But once you've made, you know, 10,000 copies, any copy after that is nearly free at that point. It's, it's just all the setup. And so once the tooling is done, then it's really just a matter of running the die and, and making the figures. And they had done uh, the Eradicator and some other figures. I think uh, Dr. Polaris and a few that they had not made. Blue Beetle was one also. And when I was 
made aware of that. I said, hey, listen, can we do those? Because we can fill that that niche for the DC collector. And hey, it's already done. So uh, they did let us do the Eradicator. And I can't remember if we did any other ones. But I, I think based on the interest there, then Hasbro started producing those figures as limited runs for, I think, Diamond at that time. Diamond caught wind of it. So if anything, maybe we were sort of the, the impetus for Diamond Select Toys to kind of get off the ground when they realized that in addition to you know, selling all the comics, they could also jump into the action figure and collectibles. I'm curious to know then for you, like as you're going through the experience of editing this magazine, you know, meticulously every word before it goes out to print, like, did you have a favorite feature that you were involved in creating during your run as editor or just a a favorite moment in production? Um, I really enjoyed the covers. I enjoyed that process because out of all the things that we did, the covers involved the most work. I mean, literally half day photo shoots. I'm not sure if if anyone's talked about the ADAT cover that we did for the first yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. That first monthly issue, it's so strange because you go on to basically feature, you know, character figures, but you start yeah. with a, a vehicle. What was up with that? Well, I mean, I think the intent was to do characters because they were just easier to photograph, but Hasbro had sent us the ADAT prototype and which, you know, blew my mind that they would like ship this from at the time they were in Cincinnati because they were still in the the Kenner part of before moving everything to Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So they sent this to us and it was like, it's, it's the the toy, the Star Wars toy that every kid wanted, but only the rich kids got. And, you know, we looked at it and we thought, wow, we could really do something with this. So we bought a $600 photo backdrop of some, you know, Norwegian. Norwegian mountains, snow covered mountains, a hundred pounds of cornstarch for the snow and set this thing up, photographed, I think some very teeny tiny, uh, they might've been micro machines, snow speeders, and you know, those were later photoshopped in, but we, we photographed this thing in various poses. And then I had the thankless task of cleaning it off and you know, using a toothbrush to get all the cornstarch off of it in order to mail it back to Hasbro. And, and happily, the uh, when we, we got off the ground and we showed the companies these covers that we were capable of doing, they were more inclined to send us prototypes and to get their stuff on the covers of things they wanted to promote. And the thing that comes to mind most readily is uh, Small Soldiers which Hasbro really, really, really wanted to be a big thing. And, you know, the movie was just, you know, I don't know. It it, it kind of bubbled under. I don't know if it was a bomb, but it wasn't, it didn't blow everybody away. And we got these toys. And of course they're characters that nobody knows. They're like little monster action figures, not particularly interesting. And we just struggled to figure out how to photograph them. And I think Steve Blackwell, our design manager, finally said, well, they need to have scale. They're action figure sized in the movie. So we, we shot them against a hubcap of someone's car and that ended up being the cover, but still it looked great because we had Paul Chiraldi, our, our in-house, well, kind of our in-house photographer. Paul would come up for the days we needed him to shoot things. And we just employed him regularly. Like we just made it his regular thing to come up on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And we, you know, paid for the entire day. And, and Paul was, you know, also working on movie sets, shooting stills for HBO and all these big companies, but he kind of liked, I guess, working with us and adding to his portfolio with uh, action figure shots and especially these covers, which, you know, I, I think would look great in uh, you know any portfolio really but you know each cover required some kind of just magic idea we did a boba fett one and uh, the idea was to do wanted posters in the background with boba fett and you know it just it depended on the action figure but that, that took up the lion's share of our photography time just figuring out how to make this stuff dynamic because the the other magazines tomarts and action figure insider and they just shot the figures. They didn't really think of the artfulness of it. And, you know, Wizard by that point was really, you know, I mean, was driving the bus in terms of the collectibles market. 
Yeah. Now I'm curious as well, you know, how involved was Pat McCallum in the content found in Toy Fair and what are kind of some of your favorite memories of working with Pat? Well, Pat was in charge of everything. Um, I mean, his, I think his role as executive editor for all the publications was that he was sort of the guiding editorial voice. And we had to split his time with Wizard and uh, Inquest and then any specials that uh, Wizard was producing at the time. So, you know, we would have certain lunch days with Pat where we would just kind of figure out the content of the magazine, go into his office and we'd figure out the, the poly bag text. And, you know, we would just kind of plan each issue. And then Pat would have to carve out time in his schedule for Twisted Mego Theater because he was the guiding force behind that with uh, Tom Root and Doug Goldstein, both of which later went on with Matt Senreich to, to form Robot Chicken for the Cartoon Network. So he was really sort of the guiding light behind just the irreverence of the magazine. No joke was too low. <laughs> so... <laughs> Toy Fair was just irreverent. You know, I, I don't know. I guess maybe it helped us to turn our editors off and that uh, we didn't <laughs> ever discount an idea as not good enough. We really wrestled things into submission. We did have a lot of creativity in a smaller room. The Toy Fair staff was three of us, Tom Root, Tom Palmer, and myself in our own little office suite. And we kind of had to put out the magazine with a, a smaller staff, even though we called upon the wizard research and design teams and everything else. We had a smaller magazine, but you know, we had to put it all together. And I think we were of like minds with Pat. I don't think we ever really butted heads on any, any content. If anything, uh, any headbutting was with the people upstairs because they wanted to get us into Toys R Us. And Toys R Us just wanted something that was a little less fart jokey. <laughs> so, and that was the line that uh, we weren't going to change. We weren't going to pander to, uh, you know, the, the, the man, the, the corporate uh, and Luckily, eventually they got Toy Wishes magazine. They got the Toy Wishes yeah, catalog. Well, Toy Wishes was more of that industry kind of thing. You know, as uh, things opened up with the action figure companies and the industry, like that really you know, took a look at the business side. We weren't in it for the business side. We were for the fans. You know, people bought us for entertainment, not simply to see how much their spawn uh, collection was worth. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, so, you know, you're talking about the, you know, the cast of characters at editorial and the cast of characters upstairs. And one name we haven't heard just yet is uh, the big cheese himself. So it's time. We have to ask you <laughs> as we ask everybody else, Scott, Garib Seamus, cool or fool? Uh, I think that's easy. I think Garib Seamus, I'm going to say cool, only because I, I never had a crossword with Garib. Even with uh, the, the Spawn lawsuit, I, I you know, asked for my own lawyer to represent me and Wizard you know, complied. And of course, that has to come right from the top from Garib. So Garib and I always got along. You know, My interactions with him weren't as daily or on a frequent basis as some of the other people, but uh, he let us do what we wanted to do. I think he recognized that uh, he sort of had to just let the man magazines be what they were. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, he kind of retired from all of it. And now he makes his weird um, paintings with, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it, it's kind of like, they, they look like uh, cake decorations. And, you know, and, and, and uh, apparently there are no other cake decoration painters out there. So he's the he one. Has found, yeah, he, he's found his thing. So, you know, I mean, you know, and also, you know, Garib hired me, he approved hiring me. And uh, that helped to enable, I, it was my first writing editorial job out of grad school. And uh, it helped to lead to my, my freelance writing career. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm thankful. So thank you, Garib, and you're cool. <laughs> One for cool. We'll check it <laughs> off there. Uh, now, what to you then overall, as you look back, what was the best perk of working at Wizard and Toy Fair for you? Oh, the best perk. We got a lot of free stuff. 
You know, I mean, obviously, you know, comic comps, toy comps and things like that were always cool. We were sent, you know, boxes of Nerf guns and we had, uh, you know, Nerf wars in the office. <laughs> Out of the blue, you know, lifting up your rifle and shooting somebody in the head as they were writing an article. I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, the general feeling around the offices. So um, I, I didn't appreciate it as much at the time because I was more straight laced. I was one of the few, if only married staffer. So at the end of the day, I went home to be with my spouse and preferred that to, you know, playing foosball or Parappa the rapper. <laughs> you know, in, in Pat's office on the video game consoles. As you mentioned your wife, the question I have is how interested is she in your world or just how tolerant has she had to be that my life is action figures and comics? She is very tolerant of it. And, you know, she has set limits, which, you know, I need, of course. <laughs> we have followed each other to our careers, you know, and kind of enabled each other. And like I said, she really helped to enable me to become a freelance writer. She supported me financially and emotionally. And uh, and she was also an English and Russian major. So we are of like minds in terms of storytelling. Uh, I introduced her to Sandman. She, uh, on her days when she was in grad school, found old issues of Commandy at a local comic shop for me. <laughs> so it's not really something that she seeks out, but she has two children uh, with me who one is a total fanboy, my son, and my daughter is a budding special effects artist. So I think that she tolerates the nerddom at the genetic level at this point. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just endlessly thankful. I mean, you know, I love her to death. I, I, have, I always mention her when somebody says, you know, how did you become a writer? Because I, I don't think, you know, unless you can support yourself, you really have somebody there that's that's helping to give you a, a lift up psychically in addition to, you know, helping to pay the bills. You know, freelance is feast or famine many times. And so I can't say enough about her. But, you know, I, I was made to feel welcome. And, you know, it was a big, goofy, nerdy family at the end of the day. And I have maintained uh, lifelong friendships with uh, some of my staffers. Uh, Andrew Carden, uh, who was my first uh, the person to share an, an office with and sort of, you know, helped to, to guide me at Wizard when I was hired. Steve Blackwell, the design manager. Pat, you know, just a, a bunch of great guys who have gone on to great things also. And uh, did you keep any swag, any of the items <laughs> that you received from the office? When I left Wizard, um, my, my final day, they took me out to lunch and presented me with a Kid Flash Mego figure. Like at one point, randomly, someone had asked me, like, who's your favorite Mego that you never own? And it didn't occur to me at the time that Pat was going to have the research team, Dan Riley find it for me. And he, he gifted it to me. And uh, he also had a custom Paul Kirk Manhunter made for me, not by Charlie Flat. This one was kind of based on the, the DC superheroes, nine inch bodies. And I think it was based on an Aquaman figure, but uh, it was beautiful. I mean, it looked just like Walt Simonson had drawn it. And uh, so that was, you know, the cool swag that I took away from the company. So that's awesome. So, so then, yeah, let's get into that. What led to your departure from Toy Fair? What was the impetus for that? After about two years of it, I have to say it, it was exhausting because we were a small staff and, and I really wanted to write my undergraduate and graduate degrees were in creative writing. And I really had a hankering to write. And so I started getting some work from DC that was, you know, kind of kept low key from wizard until like one day somebody came in with the secret files and said, Hey, when did you do this? And I'm like, Oh, sorry. You know? And so I had to come clean with uh, the managing editor, Joe Yenerell and say, yeah, I am kind of freelancing, you know, I'm doing it offsite on my own hours, but I hope it's not a conflict of interest because I was at toy fair at that point, but I really wanted to pursue writing and I thought that I did it at the right time. And I know in hindsight that it wasn't because even though I had some, some work, I didn't have a whole lot of work. And thankfully, Wizard did help to supplement me by giving me some freelance work along the way. And, you know, I sort of kept in, you know, good graces with them before I, I cut the cord completely. So 
I just, I really had to take a leap of faith and I was enabled by my spouse who basically, you know, gave me license to, to try to pursue this and supported me in so many ways as I tried to live my dream as a freelance writer. This is what I have to tell you, Scott. So I have such a narrow view doing this podcast of Wizard and Toy Fair, right? Like that's where my research was. I'm going to the old magazines, that brief period you were there. And right? I totally missed the fact that your comics work is literally on my bookshelf next to those <laughs> magazines. I didn't realize you were that Scott Beatty. It's funny. There's a there's a Gary Scott Beatty who is has written things, but he's I guess more known for being a colorist. But I often get confused with Terry Beatty and John Beatty, and I am neither you know the inker or penciler. I, I went by my own name. I've always been Scott Beatty, and I just I started doing secret files for DC. Later, the Ultimate Guides that were produced for DC by Dorlin Kindersley and a couple of the editors that I had done secret files work for, particularly Darren Vincenzo, gave me a shot at writing uh, some stories. And then the first story I did was for the DCU Holiday Bash. Uh, I did a shrapnel story. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to do any other hero. They're like, all the heroes are taken. Think outside the box. And I thought, well, I'll do a supervillain Christmas story. Because I had been inspired by the, the great DC Holiday stories as a kid. And it just like one thing led to another. And one of the things that, that helped also was... Um, I had the idea back during Toy Fair to take a comics creator with us to the International Toy Fair. And at the time, the Batman and Robin movie was coming out and Kenner had made the Batman and Robin figures, you know, of Bane and everything else. And so Chuck Dixon lived in, uh, at the time, lived just outside of Philly. So I invited Chuck to meet us in the city to see the new Batman toys. And Chuck had a great time. He is a, also an action figure and miniature collector. So it's, uh, it was in his wheelhouse. And he wrote, a, I think, a last page feature on having you know the first Bane action figure. And now, of course, there have been 4,000 since. Yeah. But Chuck and I struck up a friendship. And then later, we sort of pitched Robin year one to DC. I had done a couple of things with him, like co-writing, like some small 10-page stories. But from there, we did Robin, Batgirl, and Nightwing, and Joker, Last Laugh. And, and then I was uh, I was on Batman Gotham Knights for over a year and a half. So it you know things opened up for me. And I, I had some good mentoring that I, that I have to really give credit for from both DC editors and from Chuck and some other wonderful people in the industry. So they you know helped to prop the door open and, and let me force my way in. Yeah, I mean, it's so great. Like, I literally, I'm just like, I've read Nightwing Year One and Batgirl yeah. Year One is one of my, I'm not a big DC guy, but Batgirl Year One is just one of my absolute favorites. Oh, so. thank you. That's one of my favorites to, to have been involved with. It's a, I don't know, just story and art. We, I think we just really gelled on that in ways really, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it, I've worked with a ton of great artists, Butch Geis, Scott McDaniel on Nightwing Year One and, and Marcos Martin on Batgirl Year One. But there, sometimes when you just, you just hit it and it's, you know, it's magic. And I got to tell you too, my co-host on our main show actually gifted me your DC Comics action figure archive <laughs> book a while back. And right. again, I was like, I have that book. I was like, wait a minute. So, I mean, just so much of Scott Beatty is, is here. Is in that the, the hardcover or softcover? Yeah, yeah version? this is the hardcover. So hardcover, is... okay. Yeah, you know, I pitched that to DC purely selfishly. I just wanted to write a, a toy book because I, I missed working with toys after being away from Toy Fair. And I was uh, partnered with Mark Witz. Uh, Mark, he's uh, daily departed just a beautiful man good friend he he died suddenly about four or five years ago at this point just had a heart attack and mark loved toys and he worked for dc direct photographing action figures and they gave us access to the dc archives and library to photograph these toys and and my only regret with the thing is that we we thought doing it a to z made intuitive sense 
but it really should have been done according to toy lines chronologically because there is, you know, we don't have every single toy photograph like we wanted to, but we went into it with, with great intent and it was a lot of fun to work on. And I I had a good friend for, you know, good many years as a result of it too. So, yeah, I don't know if you realize this either, but as we look at the wizard and toy fair timeline, like you said, there's so many people that did go on to write. And even to this day, you know, the later generation that are involved in editorial, but you were really the first wizard alumni to make that jump so early on to become a comics professional. Like, could you think of anybody else that you were working I, with that went and I, wrote? I, yeah. I don't know if I was the first, actually, I think right around the same time. And he may have predated me, Tom Root um, of Toy Fair and then later Robot Chicken. Tom was, had struck up a relationship with Antarctic Press and he was doing some, you know, manga inspired stuff with them. And I don't know if he came out first or if I came out first or simultaneously, but, you know, Tom, you know, Tom was really working it, you know, there too, because, you know, I think, you know, if you're a writer, that's an itch you have to scratch. And so, you know, he did his toy fair stuff and he was pursuing other things. And then when, uh, when Matt Senreich and Doug Goldstein and Seth Green were concocting, you know, what became Robot Chicken, I think it was probably an easy decision for all of them to make, to sort of take that leap of faith themselves and head to LA. So looking back now, as we've been having this great conversation, just loving these stories, but, you know, we're in the 30th anniversary year of Wizard from when Wizard launched, if you can believe it. So what do you think is the legacy of Wizard and Toy Fair to the world of comics and toy collecting? Look, I I think the the legacy of Wizard is undeniable. We are at a cultural high point for comics and toys, especially superheroes. I mean, you look at every streaming media, movies, and everything is is, related to some kind of comic or has some comic iteration associated with it. And it's the kind of stuff we dreamed about as kids, but we weren't, you know, we didn't have anything remote good until the first Batman movie. And then we had a a lot of crap, you know, a crap ton of crap uh, until (laughs) just the last two decades. And the fact that we had like an Avengers movie that was just, you know, made grown men cry, all of that stuff. And, And the plan and the fact that we have these Hollywood actors and actresses and directors, Kenneth Branagh, who was a Shakespearean trained thespian helming a Thor movie just shows you that that comics are now mainstream finally. And I was remarking a few years ago, my kids were at martial arts practice and I looked around the room and fully, I think 95% of the adults and the kids were all wearing some kind of superhero warm-up gear. You know, the men in Iron Man, you know, shirts and, you know, the kids in Spider-Man, you know, uh, spandex and all that. And I think that that just shows you that how far we've come. I I remember taking my wife to a a San Diego Comic-Con not long after we'd been married. And she had remarked that how clean the women's bathrooms were because there were no women there. And now you look at you look at Comic Con and any Comic Con now, and it's it's fully integrated. It's uh, inclusive, diverse, and cosplay has just skyrocketed. Like people are all in in comic fandom, and I have to believe that we wouldn't be at this place without the uh, without Wizard because Wizard made it cool and fun to be a comics fan, not just a nerd, you know, living in their parents' basements. Like they, they mainstreamed it in such a way that the only drawback is that Wizard never jumped on the internet fast enough to appreciate the fruits of their labors 
Pat's labor, Brian's labor, Garib's labor, everyone who worked all the way down the chain from you know design to warehouse and everything else to, to fully appreciate the legacy of the publications. Yeah, I mean, I think it's wonderful what you were able to contribute, especially, I mean, Toy Fair is the one magazine that everybody's always asking, when are you going to cover Toy Fair? When are you going to go? Like, well, we're, we're a wizard podcast, but we cover all the magazines at some time. You know, there is just, there is so much love for what you guys put together there. It just, it engenders like wizard is controversial. Everybody loves Toy Fair though. You know, like the, the opinions expressed of Wizard were something, but Toy Fair was just pure joy for everybody. Yeah. We know what's funny is that we all worked on the magazines, but whenever the the magazines would actually ship to us, and they're you know we would get the first printings, and those weren't polybagged. And whenever those boxes would come in, those are the first things that people grabbed because they wanted to read you know the things that they had not just had worked on, but had everybody had worked on. So you know they were passed around the office. People were laughing at jokes that that we had worked on for two months, and it just shows you that you know the, the people involved in the product were really emotionally invested in not just its success, but just the creativity behind it. Well, Scott, we want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experience and your stories because yeah, every piece of the puzzle just brings more excitement you know, to those that, that remember reading it and then they could relive the fun and now they get the, the extra little tinge of, oh, I didn't know about that. So now what are you working on these days and can people find you online? What are you up to? Yeah, um, I have a blog. It's uh, it's scottbeatty.blogspot.com. It's, uh, it's called Dialogue to Follow. You know, it's sort of like that that page of art that is waiting for the word balloons. I fill it with things that I'm working on, references to stuff that is that's in the media right now. There's been a lot of interest, I think, over the last year and a half during the pandemic and all the year ones. Like they they were republished in hardcover form, and you know they keep mentioning elements of Batgirl Year One for this new Batgirl movie coming out on HBO Max. So I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, we'll see some some story elements there. I just finished, during the pandemic, a Marvel mini book of heroes and Marvel mini book of villains. If you go on Amazon, they're literally, I mean, no bigger than a deck of cards, 150 pages each, 150 villains and 150 heroes. Uh, they're quite possibly the tiniest, largest books I've ever done. <laughs> but they have profiles of Marvel's biggest and brightest superheroes and supervillains. And the thing I'm most proud of is that uh, I was in coordination with the Marvel editors to make the power scales, you know, the stuff that you would see on like collectible card gaming right. and stuff like that. Uh, it's all over the place on the internet from, from Marvel's own website to the fan sites in terms of who's stronger, you know, uh, the Hulk or the thing. And Marvel finally just sat down and vetted my stuff and said, okay, these are the official power scales, strength scales, energy scales for all of them. So I think, you know, for, for once, you know, I've, I've contributed something to the Marvel canon that is, uh, is meaningful. So that came out most recently. Got some other things, you know, on the horizon that uh, I hope to announce on my blog for too long. But, you know, that's a good place to check out, you know, what I'm working on and, and things that are, you know, in the media. And there you have it. Our interview with Scott Beatty, the original editor of Toy Fair and, of course, author of many of your favorite comics and comic book reference books. He is the arbiter of power in the marvel universe look out thanos anyway we want to thank you all for listening and checking out this edition of the wizard files and of course if you are listening out there if these are your friends and former co-workers that are telling their side of the story why don't you give us your perspective we would love to hear what you experienced creating any of the wizard magazines whether it was inquest or toy fair or even uh, sci-fi invasion one of you uh, out there just so dedicated 
contributed to your work in sci-fi invasion let us know but in the meantime you listeners can keep in touch with us on social media at wizards comics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram check out our video content on wizards podcast on youtube And to give you a heads up for who's coming down the pike next, yes, we are going to get back into the world of the 2000s. Ooh, we're going to find out what was going on at Wizard in those days with a man who rose through the ranks to become an editor, gentleman who contributed a lot of fun to the magazine. Yes, Jesse Thompson will be joining us next time around. And of course, you can check out our main episodes every other Wednesday where we go through an issue of Wizard Magazine, our mini episodes after each of those where we get into the nitty gritty side of things like the contests and the top 10 lists. And uh, we also have bonus episodes that come up every once in a while, like our 90s Super Cinema series, where we cover a 90s comic book-based or superhero movie uh, from that era that that Scott mentioned. It was a crap ton of crap. But for those of us that it was all we had to grab onto, we, we took what they gave us. And so we say to you, until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.